0: We've been able to improve the understanding that people have of the issues and raise awareness. And for me, I think that is the most important thing that we can do. It's going back to basics. It's helping you understand what racism is and how it operates in the world today and racism beyond what is overt and those things that are happening online.
1: First, here is a message from the sponsor of today's episode, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They'll never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. A Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for themselves, for their teams, for their business and for their culture. We help unlock that growth. Through actionable coaching, leadership development programs workshops or speaking we create foundational people over profit environments a kind where productivity and innovation soar and culture inclusion equity sit at the heart of operations if you're ready to step out the box and take your organization to the next level contact us today www.mindsetshift.co.uk Enjoy today's episode. This week at Everyday Leadership, we're talking to Dr. Oli Folayo. He is a chartered process engineer and combustion specialist in oil and gas. He is the co-founder of AFB, the Association for Black and Minority Ethnic Engineers. He is a judge and a panellist. He does a lot of work with university and next-generation organisations, focused on helping people make the transition from academics into the workplace he has also written a number of publications. As always, we go all the way back as I was curious as to where this love for engineering that Dr. Oli has came from.
0: I was nine years old when I decided I wanted to be a chemical engineer. Not an engineer, a chemical engineer. And what actually inspired that was I read a book, and this is true, I read a book about a really evil guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who was doing a lot of very dangerous experiments for what he was doing, but he was very powerful. And I thought, in my nine-year-old head, I thought, I really like this guy. <laughs> and so, and so I asked my dad, I says, my dad is an engineer. He was a mechanical engineer. And I asked him, what types of chemicals do chemical engineers make? And he said, any chemical. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to be a chemical engineer. And that was really my introduction. As I usually tell people, though, I've become a Christian
1: since. So no longer there. I'm curious, like, what book was this? So what story was this? Because I'm like, what what inspires a nine year old to be like, okay, I like this. I want to get involved. (laughs) This is going to get some people very worried. That's why I was very quick to talk about my conversion. So early conversion. And so that's no longer my intention. Now I just deal with combustion as if that's any better. So from that age, was it always, you want to go to chemical engineering and oil and gas was a sector you actually focused on, or were you just actually um, curious uh, about that? No,
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there were two things that interested me as someone who was very young. I was always interested in the STEM subjects, particularly mathematics. I was quite analytical already. I had this strange fascination with fire, which, again, it would be another very worrying thing. But actually, those two things ended up being areas that I worked in. So I had my bachelor's in the University of Sheffield in chemical engineering with fuel technology. And I was actually interested in alternative fuels. So after my first year in Sheffield, I had a summer placement, Imperial. And I remember speaking to a number of people who were doing the PhDs talking to them about alternative fuels and it was actually from that point that I decided when I completed my degree that that's what I would do so yeah so certainly areas of engineering STEM all of that was always very interesting to me.
1: Now you mentioned so your dad was an engineer did you have I'm going to call it the old school of you know you need to be a doctor lawyer engineer <laughs> Culture that we all grew up with was that yeah, part of your upbringing as well? Down absolutely further.
0: If I had come up with one of the other four acceptable careers in a Nigerian household, if I'd come up with, I want to be a doctor, if I said I want to be a lawyer and accountant, I'm sure that would have been accepted, but <laughs> apart from engineering. But yeah, I think that was it. But my dad was also. We did sort of engage with the ideas all through, you know, sort of regular conversation. So that whether it was boiling water and all oh, that, my dad would ask me a question like, what's the heat transfer mode? Not a <laughs> usual type of conversation. <laughs> and I was, oh, convection. So, yes, convection. So, so yeah, we did have those kinds of discussions. He comes from a sort of big polygamous type home. My dad did. He's passed away now, but he actually usually says to us that he's number 23 in a line of engineers in the family and so there are quite a lot of people in our family who are engineers and who are interested in it so I think it was certainly that environment yeah it was that environment and it was the early sort of curiosity about how things are I usually was always fascinated how things work as well and so I did end up damaging quite a lot of whether it was a video recorder in the house or the television (laughs) at different points mostly because I wanted to know I wonder if you could do this <laughs> you do that. So.
1: I can relate to that. In fact, I remember I used to take apart our VCRs, and yeah. put them back together. And there was a running joke in my house that there was always a screw or two missing. But like, listen, it works. There's no rattling. There's nothing to worry about. I was always fascinated. And that curiosity led me toward when I was like 14, I used to build computers. I used to take wow. computers apart, build them together. And I used to make money from that. But it's understand understand that you were actually doing something constructive. I was just ruining them and leaving them as it was. <laughs> So you're a better, you're a much better example. (laughs) And how did you find navigating that field in that space? Because I worked in engineering for years and I know your background as well. It's not a diverse space at all. It is very, very, very wide space. Mm. And Mm. obviously from your experience in Sheffield to going into your PhD and all that, it would have got even worse and worse the more you progressed in that. So how did you find things?
0: Interesting is the word. I think there were two things that attested in in many cases, I would say that being in those environments sometimes led me to doubt myself. And I think that sometimes what then followed on from that was probably, in many cases, a reaction to that lack of confidence. And that was certainly an issue. And almost sometimes walking into a room and in some respects apologizing through behavior being in the room. And to be honest, I would say that it's something that throughout my career, I'm slowly learning to overcome. It's not something that I would say that I've ever mastered or although that was happening. So that was happening on one level, but on the other level, there was also a certain kind of grounding that was built at home. So you can put it this way. I may have always doubted how high I could go, but I was certainly certain how low I would never be. So in that sense, my family, my upbringing gave me that foundation, that sense of self-worth that meant that even when things were bad, I didn't stop believing that I could overcome some of the challenges that I faced. But there was also still that lack of confidence and that sometimes reflected in the way that I carried myself in those days, even in my PhD years. Outwardly to everyone, I seemed very confident with no issues, but I knew inside that very often there was also this underlying lack of confidence. Some of that was that despite the fact that I came from a family where you had these role models and you had this environment, I was coming into an industry where there weren't that many examples of people in, certainly in my lane, who looked like me, who had a similar background to me. So it sounds almost contradictory, but yeah, I've been living with those two issues, those two levels of consciousness, if that makes sense.
1: It makes perfect sense. And I kind of want to delve into that a little bit more because I know there'll be young people having navigating through university, there'll be people in other organizations in different industries who will be having those feelings as well. So I want to understand a bit more around how did those feelings for you show up and how did you keep on pushing through? Yes, your, your background helped you because you had that firm foundation from home, but you still kept on pushing and striving to be more and achieve more. So how did you actually develop that side of you to not just give up and be like, oh, this is too hard. I'm not going to do it anymore. I think
0: one of the main things that that foundation gave me was a belief that when things go wrong, that's not a reflection of you. It's a reflection of the situation. And there are things you can always do. You can always do to learn. Something that I think that we always ought to have at the back of our minds is the gap a gap between sort of where we are and where we want to be. And that for me means I come into a situation, I've just had a conversation with someone, they probably present this sort of supercilious attitude that says, you don't know what you're talking about. I could come away from that and agree that, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. In fact, I never know what I'm talking about. Or I could come away from that situation and say, I'm going to spend some time prepare so that next time I meet you, next time I'm discussing with you, I know what I may have been missing the last time and that's not going to happen again. So I spent a lot of time outside of work, actually preparing myself. And one of the earliest discoveries I made earlier in my career was that the things that were actually going to make a difference long term were things that were happening post 5 p.m and things that were happening in the evening. So those extra things that I was doing to develop myself, whether that's reading, whether that's going on courses, whether that's sitting in my room and reading some reference book cover to cover that some people would hear about and think this guy is a bit nuts. But yeah, it was doing what I needed to do in order to ensure that I'm able to address those gaps. So the way that I've tried to do things is be realistic about where those gaps are And do what I can within my own power to address those gaps. And that's meant calling up people and asking questions. In fact, it was a desire actually to mine some of those, bridge some of those gaps that eventually led me and my sister to create AFBE. So, in order to find those people, those mentors that I could reach out to and get some of that information. So, that's how I dealt with it. The key to confidence is preparation and. In many cases, what I try to do and what I continue to try to do is prepare more and be committed to daily and regular preparation.
1: You mentioned um, AFB, for those who don't know, can you just give us a background around AFB, the inception, what you do, and actually what the mission behind the organisation is?
0: Yeah, so this sort of leads very, very naturally from what we were just talking about, because Quite early in my career, I worked for one of the companies I'd done some of my PhD work for, and I had a situation where I was working with someone who was quite hostile and it wasn't a secret. It wasn't just my opinion. It was what quite a lot of people thought. In fact, (laughs) I had a chat with a colleague just a few weeks ago where he reinforced that he remembered quite well. That's how bad it was. And at that time, the last thing I wanted to do was actually use race as a potential reason for why things were going on. I remember actually getting upset with a colleague when he suggested that it may be as a result of racism that I was facing what I was facing. Why is that? I think partly because we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome anyway. So when certain things happen, when you're constantly told things, negative things, it gives you a certain self-image. So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, I had heard about people who used race as an excuse. And in my mind, I thought, I don't want to be like those people. So that was what was going on in my head at the time. So it wasn't something I wanted to actually think of as a reason. But the more I started to sort of speak to other people, the more I started to speak to other people that looked like me who all were having the same experiences, which was not racism, at least not overtly, it gets to a point where you start to think, well, it looks like a duck quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck.
1: <laughs> so,
0: but the other thing is, particularly in the Croydon area, there were a number of incidences. 2007 in particular was quite a flashpoint in terms of knife crime and so on. And I remember at the time, Tony Blair making a comment that this spate of murders had happened as a result of black culture. And I remember generating a lot of controversy at the time. And I remember myself and Nick, my sister, thinking, Or perhaps we need to be true to the culture, grab a few knives and go around stabbing people so that we're being genuinely true to the culture since it's Black culture, right? But it was a desire to, as I was saying before, find some of those mentors who could help me work through what I was going through and a similar experience. My sister had a similar experience and a desire to then use that network to reach the community that led to the creation of AFB UK. And so we started off five members in my flat in Croydon discussing at that time. And we touched on so many things at the very first meeting. And it's taken 14 years to actually work through some of the very things we discussed then. So sometimes people ask us, how have things changed? Actually, I think we've grown into the vision So at that point, we were already talking about reaching young people, which is kind of the obvious one. We were already talking about recruitment and employment into industry. We were already talking about the fact that we couldn't see that many leaders within our industry who were from a Black background. We were already talking about the fact that a group like ours could be used for sustainable development because most of us are by definition of African, Caribbean, Asian descent. So all of those things we were talking about, but it's taken all this time for us to actually grow into it. The first program we set up was called Making Engineering Hot. And I think I said to you the first time we spoke that we initially thought about calling it Making Engineering Sexy, but we thought, (laughs) "Mm, maybe not. Let's keep it clean. Uh, And um, we would go into schools and ask questions of young people. And you'd get the really bright kids who ask you some questions that made you feel like, I better go get my textbook and look up the answer because this is such a clever question. And then you get the even more clever questions like, how much do you earn and what car do you drive, which we know is far more technical and far harder to answer. And then, yeah, we used to go into various schools and what we tried to do was focus on inner city schools because I was aware of a lot of STEM campaigns that were taking place. I was aware of within my profession, for example, we've got something called the Why Not Eng program. And there were a lot of those kinds of programs taking place. But a lot of them, in many cases, at least what we thought was they were reaching schools that in some ways already had those role models. They already had those, not where the help was actually needed. And so what we tried to do was go into some of the poorer areas, some of the poorest boroughs in London and actually carry out these programs. And I remember we would hold surveys of the people in the schools and ask them, show us an example of an engineer they know. And in many cases, it was the AFB member that some of those kids were able to point to because in many cases, they didn't necessarily have those people in their own world But yeah, so I moved up to Scotland in 2010. I noticed there were some unexpected similarities between London and Aberdeen in particular, because London is quite an international city, mostly due to the world of finance that brings people from all over the world to London. Aberdeen is the energy capital of Europe and is also, for that reason, attracts people from all over the world. And so I remember speaking to people then, asking what the needs were. And what they said to me is there were quite a number of students that come here to study in the hope that if they do a master's program in oil and gas engineering, they'll get a job in their industry. But very often, they weren't aware of how the system worked here. And even things like the recruitment cycle, in many cases, the point at which they started their master's program would have been the point at which they needed to start to apply for jobs. And and very often they weren't aware of that. And they were mainly thinking about international students. But I was looking at it and thinking, even if you were looking at it from a UK perspective, in a UK context, there are very clear issues that affect people that apply for jobs. And we've talked about the GEM study, for example, that showed that if you have a Nigerian sounding surname, you will generally have to send out 80% more applications in order to get a similar callback rate to a white applicant. So it's those kinds of things that meant that we set up a program called Transition. And since then, we set up a whole set of other programs, including the Leadership Program, which we set up and launched in 2020. And we're honored to have you speak at in May.
1: So yeah, so that's a kind of summary of AFBE. really amazing initiative. I guess highlights the problem that you saw that you and your sister faced you wanted to do something about and at the time when you set it up I was very surprised to learn that a lot of organizations didn't jump and want to get involved because you're thinking this is great this is great for us this is great solves a problem that we have in our industry and yet organizations held back when you were saying that you were self-funded for a very long time and you kept this going what was that resistance that you were finding from organizations? Because they were saying one thing, but do something completely different.
0: That's right. Yeah. So for years, many companies have had statements that talk about an ideal of wanting to be diverse and inclusive. But it's always seen from our perspective that race and ethnicity have been the poor cousin of all of the other areas to focus on. And I think part of what we were dealing with here is a huge part of it had to do with the denial that there is even an issue. And I'm surprised often how often I still hear that view that none of that matters in today's world. I mean, there's often a misunderstanding of racism that people think racism is time dependent. And there is this arrow of time that leads us Inexorably towards this woke future where it doesn't exist anymore, but it's not time dependent. It's power dependent. And that is the issue. And so in many cases, I mean, we had experiences of sometimes calling up an organization, wanting to speak to somebody in the organization about what we do and getting a sort of uh, fake email it was clearly fake email that was given to us. And I remember one occasion where that happened. And I just thought, what the hell? I'm going to CC the CEO of this organization. And in my response to the person that I spoke to. <laughs> and what was interesting is the following day, I got an email from the CEO saying, We want to see you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the other thing. So sometimes you have these gatekeepers between the people at the top of a company and us. And those people feel it's their role to protect the leader. So there's all kinds of attitudes. I mean, we used to have a scenario where. There was one occasion where I had invited the CEO of a major engineering company to speak at one of our events. All happened within a conversation, one conversation. But from that moment, all of the people who worked for this person were doing absolutely everything to protect this person. We couldn't record the event. They basically wanted us to, at the very start of this event, that none of us would say anything. He'd walk onto the stage, give his speech and walk out. That's exactly what they wanted to do. Anything to ensure that as much as they could minimize, because he'd already accepted. So, as much as they could minimize his contact with us, they were going to do. And he had even recommended a charity for us to raise money for. And they insisted, can the charity speak immediately after he does? And we refused. We said, well, it's our event. (laughs) We can't have a scenario where that happens, where we aren't allowed to speak at our own event. And so, yeah, so there were all these issues. I mean, one of the more recent ones that happened was we'd organized this huge event and we talked about our vision, what we were trying to do. It was all a very inspiring evening. Just while we were taking pictures at the end, the person who we'd invited as a speaker, you know, in the way that people do in this sort of showbiz manner, we were taking pictures. And then it just sprung a question on me. They said, do you make any money out of this? And I remember thinking, I mean, first of all, I mean, if we did make money out of it, then that would not be a problem because after all, there are people who work in that sector. But you'd expect us to have said that (laughs) at the start and you'd expect us to have presented that fact. And what they tried to do was kind of catch me unawares because in their minds, this wasn't really about the issue that you're saying it's about. It's probably another scam to somehow make money. You can't be doing all of this for nothing. And I think that there was some of that going on. So there's suddenly been this constant resistance. And, you know, for a lot of people, when they talk about diversity, they were mainly talking about gender. But then the question I always ask them is, who are you thinking of when you're thinking of a woman? Because women are not a monolith, right? They're made up of different kinds of people. And can you genuinely achieve your gender targets without looking at all of the layers that make up what we call women? And so I've come to a point now where I believe if I meet anyone who's a champion of gender diversity, who has nothing to say about racism, in my mind, they're not a champion. They're not an ally. They're a lobbyist. That's what they are.
1: Wow. That's a very powerful statement. (laughs) That is a very powerful statement. And actually, it's one that I also agree with, to be honest, because I remember I think I was actually reading Renio Joe's book, Why no Longer Talk about Race to White People, And she mentioned the same thing, went into women's movement, and anytime she brought in race, yeah. she was met with this wall of silence like, no, we don't do that here. this is not what we talked about. And that was a surprise to her at first until she recognized that, oh, okay. We can talk women's rights, but if you don't, as long as we don't talk about race, that's another layer that no one wants to mention. And that speaks very specifically to what you're talking about. But it's still seen as a very controversial statement to make. When you make that out in public, I'm sure there'll be a lot of backlash. Yeah, there were were a lot of people who, a lot of trigger (laughs) figures, shall I say, who are quick to point out this and point out that and have, but in the actual fact, it's the reality of it. You can't say you're an ally for people in general. And then be like, oh, I'm to ally for this. That does not make any sense because that means you're also part of the problem because you're seeing everything in silos. In a very than, uh, compartmentalized.
0: Yeah. Or you have a particular base. You're working from a particular base of probably white, probably middle class, and that's it. And primarily that is your objective. Because I mean, some of those people have actually said, somebody actually said to me who was a professed, gender diversity champion, actually said to me directly, wouldn't it be better if organizations like yours just toned it down a little bit? Let's get the gender thing going. And then all of those wins will naturally, they didn't use the word trickle down, but that's what they meant, trickle down to the rest of the other issues. And they said this to me at a diversity event. And I remember thinking, what? (laughs) So there are all these attitudes, you know, there's a little bit of ignorance, there's a little bit of resistance to the idea. And so somewhere between ignorance and actually just not liking the idea, I think, led to that resistance and the reason why garnering support for race and racism causes has been a lot harder. That said, there have also always been, we also used to have a scenario where you had organizations who were quite happy to talk to us in private. So they've worked with us for years, but nobody knew. And my sister used to describe it as they were having an affair with us. It's been going on for a long time. uh, (laughs) Nobody knows. (laughs) So that used to happen. And then the other aspect is there have been some very consistent champions from the very early days who
1: also always championed what we do. So it's been a mixture. I just want to ask you about emotions. How do you handle your emotions when you have people making statements like the one you just mentioned that can come across very ignorant sometimes I'm sure they are racist comments and you have to react in a way where you filter yourself sometimes you hold yourself back sometimes you don't I don't know I'm curious to find out how you deal with it but just curious to how do you deal with those kind of statements that people make in those environments
0: I'm fortunate enough to have a certain kind of I think most of us are sort of natural statisticians. When I think about these kinds of attitudes, I think in terms of if you imagine a graph or trend with data points, and I generally prefer to respond always to the trend than to the data point. The problem with that kind of mindset is that by the time I respond to the data point, it's probably a very low data point, And everyone says, Why is he getting so upset about this small thing? But no, I've been thinking about it. I've been looking out for a pattern. So very often I take the time to actually think, what's actually happened here? And I've been fortunate enough that it's only very often, long after the events actually happened, that I decided that, okay, this is a little bit, this is what was really going on. And so because I'm still going through that loop in my head, is is this really happening? Is it not happening? I've often very rarely responded directly to what they've said, other than offer logical, sort of counterfactual, a counter-narrative to what's been said. It's the anger and the frustration comes much later. And so for that reason, I haven't had that many sort of fractious conversations with people <laughs> for that reason, only because it took me a while to make up my mind, basically. There was a lady on The Apprentice, it was about 12 years ago, who described herself as a slow burner in the thought department. I think that's me. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, and, and so for that reason, I haven't had that many. But yeah, what I tried to do, I mean, we had a scenario in Edinburgh just last year where we went to Edinburgh, we just parked our car. My daughter is autistic and so very often isn't as aware of what's happening. And She was opening the door and the door happened to touch the car of this guy who was a security guard in the pub just where we were parked. And he came along and he was just so abusive, so obnoxious, so about, he says, are you stupid or something? And it was a kind of hostility that although he didn't use certain words, you know, you feel it. And you know that he feels the freedom to do this because of what you look like. And I remember I was so outraged at the time. And so we went off and once we settled ourselves in the tower, I came back and just sat in the car and I was just looking, (laughs) I was just looking at him. And then look at him for a while and he could see me. And then I walked towards him. And I think he probably thought at this point, anything's going to happen here. And so he apologised before I said anything. (laughs) He apologised for what he'd done. I said I'd wanted to make a complaint. I I didn't make it eventually. But for me, that is quite typical of the way I've responded in those kinds of situations. It's often been, let me reflect on what's actually happened here and then decide what I'm going to do about it.
1: I hear that. And to be fair, I think that's a very measured approach which allows you to actually be able to respond in a way that it's not emotion led because when you always respond from a place of emotion we will end up doing insane things in the heat of the moment which might feel right but in the long term it has longer repercussions and when you're operating in a space where you're trying to meet people where they are and to communicate and talk about subjects such as racism Always going, there is righteous anger. Trust me, it's there, burning deep inside, Absolutely. and that comes out. But it's Absolutely. generally speaking, being able to do it in a way that doesn't put people on the defense, yes. where you actually can invite them in. So I completely yes. understand where you're coming from.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes some of that process of reflection involves speaking to my wife, speaking to my sister, working through what's actually happened and how I respond. And one of the things that often frustrates me about some of the kind of racist incidents that we've seen over the last few weeks where these players got abuse, is that that's the easy part of racism. That's the one that we can all look at and we can say, there's a monkey emoji. You're not in any doubt as to what that person's intention is. There's the N-word. We know exactly what's happening. So you know where you can address it. The problem for most of us is all of those daily things, that sort of death by a thousand cuts that happens every day in different ways, you know, whether it's the fact that you're standing there in a supermarket at the till, and it's only when you get to the till that the lady at the till decides that I need to check this note to see if it's actually a real one, or the fact that you're constantly getting shut down in discussions or in areas of disagreement or whatever you were expected to concede in the minds of people. Otherwise you're a problem. It's those things that create more, they have more of a lasting impact on us. Damaging impact. So sometimes the danger with some of those incidents, it it gives people the impression that we're actually doing something about racism because we all responded with outrage to the obnoxious tweet. But it's happening all the time by these microaggressions, and unless we start to recognise that as in some ways the real racism, because what's happening every day today to a lot of people, until we start to understand that, I don't think we'll we'll ever deal with the issue.
1: Yeah, well, the subtle ones hurt the most. Mm. Like that's. I completely agree with that. As bad as America can be sometimes, I respect the in-your-face approach that I know where I stand with you. (laughs) You don't like me because of how I look and because of the color of my skin. I understand it. At least I know where I stand. In the UK, where you have the subtlety, where you have things happening, where, like you said, you're there questioning yourself. You're like, did that really just happen? Those micro aggressions or those aggressions that happen on a daily yeah. day-to-day basis that yeah. really, yeah. really play a mental and physical role and take its toll on you. Those ones are, right. are dangerous.
0: That's right. That's right. It's coming out of a meeting and not being sure to what extent the reaction that you've had from people is down to the power or otherwise of your ideas or just the perception or the unconscious prejudices that people have. It's all of those regular things. And those are things that people talk about every day that slowly, like I talked about some of my early experiences, there was never a blatant word used, but those things eventually led to real problems for me, not just mental health, but physical health. So I think it's that that people need to understand is the way that racism works today. And until we start to think about it primarily in those terms, I don't think we'll get closer to addressing the issues. <laughs>
1: How has AFB found things since last year till now? And what does the future hold for the organisation? What would you like to see happen?
0: So it's been amazing. It's been an amazing journey. In many ways, it's been a vindication of a lot of the work that was happening at a time when no one, or I wouldn't say no one, but when we weren't getting the level of the hearing that we were. And in some ways it happened at the right time because I'll take Scotland, for example. I moved up here in 2010 started the AFB branch in 2011. And from 2011 to 2018, everything that AFB did was internally funded. We didn't have any support from anyone. But from 2018, many companies have started to speak about this issue around going beyond gender in their diversity agenda and thinking a little bit broadly. And things had really actually started to open up even before the incidents of last year but well, once that happened, there were many more companies now speaking about the need. They wanted to know what to do. How do we address this issue? How do we even broach the subject? And I've spoken to VPs of companies who I knew were genuinely wanting to deal with this issue, not the sort of performative kind, but didn't know where to begin. And we've been able to work through those. We've been able to improve the understanding that people have of the issues and raise awareness. And for me, I think that is the most important thing that we can do. It's going back to basics It's helping you understand what racism is and how it operates in the world today and racism beyond what is overt and all those things that are happening online. And we've been able to do that. I've had so many spoken at Royal Academy of Engineering, Mercedes Formula One, various other organizations about these issues. Many of these companies have then come on board. They've become part of AFBE. So since last year, we've had the likes of big names like Amazon, like EasyJet, like various organizations, the Royal Air Force Become members of AFbe corporate members, and what happens is that we work with them we work with them on their dNI program we come up with a number of tangible outcomes that we want to see within a 12 month period and the intention is we then go back and look at how we're doing so for me it's been an amazing journey of just seeing something that began very small started within a community rooted a sort of grassroots level grow into something that is now being mentioned in contexts that we could have never imagined that it would be mentioned in. And it's getting this opportunity to change the culture within companies. And and we're seeing some of that starting to happen, where I would like us to get to. Because whilst that is happening, there are still a lot of people who are stuck in, I'd say stuck in 2019,
1: (laughs) in many ways,
0: and still think about diversity in very sort of singular terms. And I'd like to see that broaden more. And I think that that's where we're going, where we can really influence our curriculum, influence culture within organizations, then start to see more leaders, because that that for me is a very, very important thing. Start to see diversity represented at leadership level, because for all of the talk that's happening, we still have a situation where FTSE 100, zero, according to report from February, zero Black leaders we still have a situation when the oil and gas industry did its survey, which was published in April, the two worst performing categories were people who were disabled or people who were black and not people who were BME, people who were black in terms of the lowest scores. So there is still a lot of work to do. And for me, what change will look like would be when we start to see more of those diversity represented at leadership level, because then that enables the attraction into the industry and enables retention because people can see a pathway, they can see enough examples of people who look like them in leadership positions, and hopefully that enables them to aspire to those roles.
1: That is such a worthy cause. Um, and I spent 12, 12, 13 years, especially in engineering, design, automotive kind of industries, and not once did I ever see anyone that looked like me. When I was navigating my way and when I got to certain positions, mm. it was just because of the drivers. Like I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to see have other people to aspire to do something. But ahead of me, there was nothing. It was just and it was hard. It was hard and it was lonely and it was frustrating. And you're having conversations with people at that level in C-suite and they don't seem to understand why you're upset about this or what difference does it make. i like because I'm listening to some of the conversations you guys are having in this room. And I can't relate to it. It's not my world. It's not my culture. And I'm still trying to bring my authentic self into that room. But if you had more people, either at my level or levels above me or levels below me, it'll make such a massive difference in the way that you approach certain things and you make certain decisions. But that wasn't the case. So seeing what and hearing what AFB are trying to do and trying to change that, especially in the leadership space, is really, really all for it.
0: Well, we're grateful. We've had the help of yourself as well in that process. So we are one of the big pleasures of this whole journey, especially since last year. All of the fantastic people we've come to know and come to meet who we're learning from and being inspired by as well, like you. So, yeah, that's been part of the joy, especially of the last 12 months.
1: What was that move like for you from London to Scotland? Interesting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> because I used to say up until that point, I used to say that Scotland is a really nice place to visit. Emphasis on the word visit. I never imagined that I would live here. It was interesting because on one hand, I could see that, yes, there were these similarities, there were significant minority ethnic population. I think we're behind Glasgow in terms of the number of people from ethnic minority backgrounds in Scotland and, you know, cities. And so I could see that, but I could also see that there was huge differences. And it was also the fact, how do you contextualize what you've been doing for a place like this? I remember somebody saying to us, oh, we've got no gang culture here. <laughs> so, so <laughs> because I talked about some of the issues we're trying to address in London. So that was interesting. That was challenging. The other thing is a lot of people who live in Aberdeen have had a very different sort of path to Britishness compared to, say, people in London. So in London, you had Black people who lived there for decades and decades, actually, if we're to go even longer than that. Whereas here, a lot of people that you meet are primarily expats, or at least started out that way. And so their understanding of, or their view, perspective on race and racism is very different. So I find myself having just as many, especially in the earlier days, just as many conversations with black people around the issues as I did with white people. And some of the resistance that we actually faced, some of it, some of the fiercest resistance that we faced actually came from black people.
1: In what way? As in, they didn't believe it was a problem? They couldn't relate to it? In in what way? Most of the time, the way I read it is
0: it was fear. It was a sense that what it reminds me of is, and I don't know if you ever saw this movie, sort of uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Sydney Party, where there is this black maid who is even more hostile to the idea of Sydney Partier, the black man getting married to the white woman and saying, I don't understand what's going on anymore. And, you know, it was that kind of attitude that how dare you have the courage <laughs> to be trying to do this. So that some of the resistance came from that sort of thing. It's kind of a, we need to know our place sort of attitude. I call it this sort of self-loathing. And I remember actually speaking about this first time we spoke that you come across and, you know, it's still what's happening today because we often talk about racism, but it's operating on a number of levels. You've got the issue, we talk about systemic, we talk about institutional, we talk about interpersonal, but we also talk about internalized. And what a lot of people have, and sometimes they're not even aware that they do have it, is a sense of internalized racism where they have accepted this idea that as a person of colour, you should know your place. You should know your place and you should accept your position. You know, aren't you from Africa after all? You know, things are a lot worse for you there. There's that kind of mindset. And so that was what we were coming up against. I found that that too has changed because the longer people go in, in their careers, the more they start to see some of the issues that we were talking about. And the more they start to understand the need to address those issues. So that's what's happened in the last few years. And of course, in the last year, there's that sense that many more people feel that they can talk about race now. To some extent, there's a little bit of bandwagon, people jumping on a bandwagon. (laughs) Sometimes I very mischievously say that I was black before George Floyd. (laughs) Because you had a lot of people, black people, who were not very interested yep. in talking about race until it became a sexy oh.
1: topic. Yeah, the conversion happened post, and
0: yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, and that conversion is also sometimes associated with a few grants. And uh, anyway, I'm going to stop there before I cause <laughs> any more mischief. <mystery. laughs> <laughs>
1: One of your in fact one of your hobbies which I discovered was gospel singing. Yes. So I was like, okay, like when we talk about differences here, I love this. I'm like a <laughs> <laughs> yes. like chemical engineer here, you got gospel singer here, like okay, like what's <laughs> Yeah, I actually got involved in a few
0: recordings as well. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, in fact, I met my wife in our church gospel choir. So oh yeah, music has been a part of my life pretty much all my life. I play guitar very badly, (laughs) and yeah, I've always been interested in music, and these days I'm finding that I'm spending a lot more time doing AFBE stuff, and I haven't been as as active as a singer, but I'm still involved in that, yeah, to some
1: extent. So what, if I go online, I can find some recordings of Dr. Early singing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably, Probably not. There was an album in 2009 that was done. Uh, my church, KICC, is a church we attended in London, and so we had a recording of Pastor Matthew had written some songs, and we did a recording in an album called My Hiding Place. And so I did that. Yeah, I was involved in quite a lot of things. One of my favorite moments as a singer was getting to sing in a Black American church in two thousand and one. And for anyone who has been involved in gospel music, we know that the home of gospel music is obviously America. So for us, it was so weird. It was weird for me to be singing in front of this Church of God in Christ in San Diego, singing in front of them singing a hymn and, you know, again the usual response to pretty much every line, amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was pretty surreal, but it was one of those ones I remember quite fondly. Yeah, so the music is a huge part. I was actually involved in I'd actually tried my hand at songwriting as well, uh, so a, a few times. But that's a project that's never really got off the
1: ground. So maybe one day—that's one for the future. You know, yeah. I have faith. <laughs> when you put your mind to do something, you always get to tend to get it done. So you never yeah, know. Yes. You never know.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I seem to remember—is it your son is it in the to the drums? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so I remember does. seeing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, so, so he does
1: um... <laughs> (laughs) drums and piano he plays plays yeah yeah so you know a
0: lot about that world but yeah it's something i would like to get back into i feel like i'm missing a huge part of myself in that sense by not doing it but yeah one day
1: Got time just to get some yes. time back that's what it is get some time back. i had a coach
0: actually claire who was actually trying to get me back into singing because in her advice was that you are kind of locking up a part of yourself in some ways and that might actually help you in some of the other areas so the problem i have these days is time for anything and trying to really balance and it goes back to the question the first question you asked me i think was about how you balance things and you know if i'm thinking of a personal goal is how i actually Start
1: living a more balanced life because I'm certainly not doing that at the moment. <laughs> I think that's one of the questions I actually get with a lot of leaders. I'm doing so many things and I don't have time to do other things, but I need to. I'm like, well, that action reflection is key in all in, in our lives to mm. help us to actually keep us recharged, re-energized. And to get the space to actually be able to execute properly. That's so, right. Don't worry. Outside of this conversation, we will talk. <laughs> <laughs> I need the help, me. I really
0: <laughs> but getting the balance right has been. I think if I'm thinking of my personal goals, career goals as an engineer, you know, I want to move beyond. You know, I'm a process well, engineer who provides consultancy in the area that I work in. But I do want to get more into a, a sort of leadership type role in my career. And I think in order to get there, certainly that balance that we're talking about there, being able to carry on doing what we've been doing, but at the same time, ensure that new aspect of our lives suffers, I think is very important. So that's why I'm
1: i am going to be working on, with your help. <laughs> we'll make it happen, because it'd be great to see you in those positions, because you... A great example, and you were able to make some much needed change in those spaces as well.
0: Absolutely. Amen. Amen to that.
1: <laughs> this might, my last question would be How do you define leadership? Cool. That's a huge
0: one. I define leadership the leader is the one who influences the direction of travel and change. Because a huge part of what I've learned in the last year has also actually discovering myself as a leader. I'm not a natural confrontational sort of person, and I'm certainly not a naturally dictatorial kind of person. And there were times when I wondered if, as a result of that personality, if I was actually a good leader, if I would make a good leader. And it's actually in the last few years, actually working with Claire, a business coach, in some ways, she helped me discover myself and become comfortable with that person. And that person is uh, a leader does not have to be for me. A leader doesn't have to be the smartest person in the room. And actually, a good leader ensures that they are not the smartest person in the room. My goal is to be an amplifier, not a silencer, to be somebody that sort of magnifies the people in the team, not somebody that kind of eclipses them just so that they can be seen. So for me, that process by which we get from A to B is what's important. The style or what that looks like, the optics don't matter so much. And over time, when I've heard some people almost imply that as a result of my personality, that I might not be as good a leader as perhaps they are, I've kind of turned around and said, well, if you can show me signs of results that you're getting, there's a lot better than what I'm getting in the way that I approach things. I will find my inner ogre immediately. So for me, that for me is leadership is being that person who influences direction of travel. It's not necessarily the person who is captain, who stands at the front and dishes out orders to everyone.
1: I love that. Those are the kind of leaders that we need more and more that can drive things forward, that can be visionary and bring people along with them because they tap into other areas of vulnerability, of openness, of reduction in the ego and more around collaboration and authenticity. We touched on so I really, really love that definition of, of leadership. And just before we wrap up, where can people find more about you, about AFBE?
0: Well, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Oli uh, Folion. You can find me on there. And then if you want to know about AFBE, our website is www.afbe.org.uk. And if you're in Scotland and would like to find out what we're actually doing in Scotland, we have another website, afbscotland.org. So yeah, that's how you can find us.
1: So all those bits of information will be in the show notes. And once again, I just want to say, appreciate your time today. Appreciate the great work that you and your sister, Dr. Nick are doing. I saw the Lewis Hamilton Report just came out as well, which was was brilliant. It was a brilliant read as well making that's changes right. in that industry. So there's just so many different areas that yes. you guys are really, really impacting and creating and moving actual change. That's why oh. I really want to talk to you. It's like, I want to talk to people who are making actual change. They're just talking about it, but doing it and have been doing it way back. Even when they had to fund it for themselves. And that's something your organization is doing. So I really, really spread the work and I'll keep on highlighting it and singing from the rooftops as much as I can around AFB. I-
0: oh, thank you so much. And your inspiration just listening to everything. And since we first spoke a year ago, yeah, I've benefited a lot from knowing you as a person and from benefiting. And yeah, hopefully we can continue on those personal plans as well. You can help me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We shall definitely do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Dr. Ali Folayo and thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about him, about the wonderful work that afb do head to my website www.mindsetshift.co.uk the show notes contains all that information and you can also find out more information about previous guests or dial into other episodes that you might have missed please do follow the show via your favorite app because that's the best way to make sure you never miss an episode i look forward to speaking to you next week where we have Judy Samuelson as our guest see you next week